Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos, and of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Corruption Perception Index from Transparency International suggests that China is roughly as corrupt as India. If that's so, then why is it that corruption seems to be so much more of a drag on the Indian economy than on China's? Indeed, why is it that in the very periods where experts all seem to agree that China's corruption was particularly egregious, China's economic growth is still so robust? These and many other mysteries and contradictions of corruption in China have long puzzled not just me, but many others who study China. Thankfully, my guest today has written a book that tackles all this and more, and it's one of the most eye-opening and insightful works I've read in many years. Uh, that book is, of course, China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption, and its author is Yuan Yuanang. Yuan Yuan is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, and also the author of another influential work on China's political economy, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. China's Gilded Age is the sequel to that book. It's built on some really innovative research design, on extensive fieldwork, including interviews with more than 400 officials, and on some really useful, compelling, and I think really quite clarifying concepts that I suspect are going to enter the lexicon of, of people who are doing work on corruption in decades to come. I had the pleasure of sharing a stage with Yuan Yuan at a conference a couple of years ago in Camden, Maine, and she completely stole the show. So never miss an opportunity to hear Yuan Yuan lecture because she's unforgettable. Yuan Yuan Ang, welcome to Seneca. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, I am so excited to be on your podcast. Thank you, Kaiser. Not as excited as I am. Yuan Yuan, let's start off by laying out the conventional wisdom about China and corruption. And, and for you, that centers, I think, on the, on the claim that China managed, you know, extremely fast economic growth, as I said, mm. not just as a percentage of GDP, but actually in absolute dollar terms as well, despite what appears to be quite high levels of corruption during, you know, these same periods of high growth. So before we get into the argument that you make, let's let's make sure we lay out all the features of this conventional wisdom view on the economic impact of corruption, broadly speaking, and, and in, in China specifically? The conventional wisdom on corruption is that corruption always impedes growth. It impedes private investment. And so therefore, if we look cross-sectionally around the world, 
the corrupt countries are also the poor countries. So when we look at China, we have a paradox. Look, this country is, as you pointed out, according to the Corruption Perception Index, it is more corrupt than South Africa. And so, if that's the case, then why is it that China has sustained four decades of continuous economic boom? So that is the paradox that we are facing. Yeah, yeah, that is a conventional wisdom.、Uh, and I mean, I think part of the problem is that, of course, and this is the main thrust of your book, is that corruption is treated as a monolith. It's it's one phenomenon, and it isn't broken down, or as you say, unbundled. It's just hard for me to believe that nobody else before you has really made an attempt to unbundle corruption, at least not beyond a distinction between what they would call extractive and and transactional forms of corruption. So, why do you suppose that is? I mean, in in a conversation I remember really well from I think it was the late 1990s, I was talking with my father about this this concept.、Mm-hmm. You know, he was doing business in China and complaining bitterly about you know his own business dealings in China and corruption. And you know, I asked him why doesn't it prevent the bridges from being built? You know, if if they contract a bridge out in in India or in in Russia,、uh, the the money will be gone. The bridge won't get built, or it'll get built, you know, way behind schedule and way over budget. And that is just not the case in China. And my my dad didn't break it down quite as systematically as you do.、Uh, he didn't have the nomenclature for it, but he clearly had this idea. That there's corruption and then there's corruption. There's different kinds and they have different effects. Not all of them entirely deleterious. So can you talk about? I mean, because we need to do this. I think at, at the very outset to lay out these basic concepts, these four types of corruption that you ta- taxonomize, and maybe we can go through each of these and、mm-hmm. maybe deploy. I think what was a really useful comparison that you used in the book with each type of corruption compared to sort of a class of drugs. Sure, and you are absolutely right. In fact, scholars have come up with terms to distinguish between types of corruption. So they use the terms petty versus grand corruption, decentralized versus centralized corruption. So the notions that there are different varieties of corruption are definitely out there. And as you correctly pointed out, even sort of lay、uh, observers have this intuitive sense that. Some corruption seems to be different from other types, but what my role is as a scholar is to think about this systematically, and so that's why the typology and the framework of the four types of corruption is important. And furthermore, I measure these four categories of corruption. Across a sample of fifteen countries, so that measurement allows us to systematically actually see that the structures of corruption vary across country, even if they have the same absolute amount of corruption. So those are the extra steps taken in my research. So let me walk you through first of all unbundling corruption. And the four types of corruption that I highlight.、Mm-hmm. So I use the analogy of drugs to help us understand four types of corruption. And the first two types of corruption are what I call corruption with theft, meaning there's a government、mm-hmm. official and he's just stealing public funds and putting them in his own pocket. He's not giving anyone else. A benefit in return, so we can distinguish between petty theft and grand theft. Right. Petty theft would be like a policeman coming to you, shaking you down, basically extorting, you know, a hundred dollars out of you. Right. And grand theft would be 
uh, high-level government officials who siphon billions of dollars out of state bank accounts into Swiss bank accounts. So they are both forms of theft. There is no exchange involved, but uh, the difference lies in the amount of money that is stolen or extorted. So these two forms of corruption with theft, I call them toxic drugs. So think of cocaine or heroin or meth. There is no benefit. Right. If you take these drugs, you are going to destroy your health and destroy your life. And that's what we see in economies as well. Uh, countries like Nigeria, which are plagued by embezzlement and extortion, they can't grow because they're constantly being robbed and preyed upon by their own government officials. And then the third kind of corruption is corruption with exchange, mm -hmm. meaning you pay a bribe and you get something back. So there is an exchange involved. And I distinguish between two types of exchange. The first is called speed money. Mm -hmm. Speed money means petty bribes that you pay to law or regular officials in exchange for getting over rate tape yeah. or getting over a hurdle or delay in order to get your passport and license faster. So you're buying speed. I call that painkillers. So you take a painkiller so that you can get rid of a headache, but it doesn't help you grow muscles fast. Right? It's, it's just a painkiller. Right. Okay, then we get to the fourth type, which is the most interesting variety, access money. So access money are privileges paid to powerful officials, not just for speed, but for access to buy special deals, regulatory exemptions, monopoly rights, mm -hmm. privileges that will help a capitalist make tremendous amount of money. And this type of corruption, access money, is what I'm going to call the steroids of capitalism. Right. And so what if you if, if you think about steroids, right? Steroids is what athletes would take to help them build muscles fast and perform superhuman feats, but if you keep taking them, it's going to exact a very serious toll on your health. Uh, so it definitely has serious side effects. So now we have this typology of four types of corruption with four types of effects. Yeah, so that's fantastic, and I, I love it, and I think the drug analogies really, really help to, to, uh, to get the point across. And, and you do point out that, you know, prolonged use of steroids is bad for you. But um, I think, you know, before we go much further, let's head off a possible critique that maybe, you know, leaving it just at that, at that claim isn't sufficient. I mean, it's going to stick in the craw, I think, of a lot of, of listeners that you know, they're going to conclude you're arguing that uh, rich countries have corruption, but that, that kind of corruption, access corruption, you know, the kind that exists in these richer countries uh, is aligned with economic transactions so you can, you know, exact more rents and uh, because, you know, you're, you're, you're growing more. Growth is incentivized, right? But to be clear, you are not arguing that this type of corruption is quote-unquote good. So, so why exactly is it, I mean, besides the, the like steroids, you know, uh, why is that corruption nonetheless ultimately baneful, even if it isn't entirely crippling? Oh, thank you so much for stressing that, because you're right. Let me first state the takeaway of the book. The takeaway is that access money boosted imbalanced risky growth in China. That's the takeaway. Right. But usually what happens, as you correctly pointed out, is that people would dumb down the message 
they would take out imbalance and risky. So it becomes access money boosted growth. And then they would take out access uh-huh. money and replace that with corruption so that the message becomes corruption boosted growth. And when you post that on social media, people go visceral. And even sometimes academics do that as well. They, 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 they read the book and then they walk away with, oh, this is a defense of the wonderful socially beneficial effects of corruption. And this is absolutely not what I'm saying. And that is precisely why I wanted to use the analogy of drugs. Because intuitively, we all know drugs have side effects, right? So no corruption is ever good, but we do want to know the different side effects. So in a, in a case like China, and I also compare it with 19th century America, which is the original Gilded Age. Right. In any of these kinds of Gilded Ages, their defining type of corruption is access money. And that corruption leads specifically to a form of growth that is imbalanced and high risk. And that's exactly what we see in China today with President Xi Jinping saying that we need to strive for common prosperity because we have a serious inequality problem. Or when, you know, when Jia Bao 2007 started talking about how, you know, it's unbalanced and not exact, right? Exactly. It's, it's an old problem and Chinese leaders have always been aware that growth in China has not come without cost. And part of the reason for that is just the moral hazard of having this money available to you without, you know, without the attendant risks or without the, the demand that uh, it return, right? Uh, this, is, this is part of it. And, and the inequalities is, is fairly obvious, you know, when you have only the few who have access to those kinds of really large bank loans or to uh, those kinds of government contracts, right, there's going to be inequality produced therefrom. So, I mean, even just a few chapters into the book, you had me completely convinced that the CPI, the uh, the Corruption Perception Index that's produced mm-hmm. by Transparency International, is, is really flawed. I, I wonder whether you've had any conversations with them or heard from anybody at uh, Transparency International about maybe incorporating some of your critique into their methodology in, in the way that they measure corruption because it struck me that they also operate something called the global corruption barometer same organization it looks at mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it looks specifically at, at what you call speed corruption at bribes and all of the, these things that cut through the red tape as it were that's right and their surveys already find that there are huge differences in the response of ordinary Chinese versus Indian citizens when they're asked about mm-hmm. this and yet they, they continue to aggregate you know this CPI score uh, and show that India and China are roughly the same year to year. So I'm, they surely see that there is a problem, uh, that it is, isn't sufficiently granular. I mean, shouldn't this alert them to something that's flawed in the CPI? I think at the outset, to be fair, one has to give credit to Transparency International for creating that index, because having tried to create one myself for only 15 countries, gosh, I know how much effort and time and money it takes. So it's an incredibly difficult work to create an index. Well, you're one person too. (laughs) (laughs) And so the the fact that they created one has the benefit of bringing attention to corruption. So I wanted to acknowledge that. But on the other hand, I think that when you produce a metric that is flawed, uh, in this sense, it reinforces the idea that corruption is a homogenous problem. It, It profoundly shapes public discourse, even elite discourse, about the way people think about corruption. And so everyone is obsessed with which country is more corrupt. But people are not asking the question of 
which country has what type of corruption? Like it's not a relevant question at all. You know, in, re- in regular conversations, it it just doesn't come up, except with your conversation with your father, which I think it's quite exceptional. Um, and so um, I I I would be very happy if they were open to the idea of having a more nuanced metric. And like you pointed out, actually they have already done some of it. The measures on petty bribery itself already indicates right. that. You know, countries with the same CPI score can have very different levels of petty bribery. Um, but I understand the logistical challenges. And you know, we live in a world, in a modern world, where people want convenient measures. Like we want things mm-hmm. to be measured in one number, you know, fifty or eighty-seven, and we want to, we love to rank things. You know, rank China against India or sure, sure. the U.S. and so forth. And so, when you introduce more nuance, it sort of becomes inconvenient, and you can't just you know put China side by side with India. Right. So I think there are a lot of kind of modern tendencies of wishing for convenience that prevents us from having more. Uh, informative indices, and so that's why I wanted to provide an alternative, and hopefully, someone with more resources than me would take it up. And so, you know, as you say, you did something truly ambitious. You tried to create your own index, and I think what you came up with is something very, very illuminating. It's an unbundled corruption index, what you call a UCI. Run through without going into too much detail of how you measured these four the, the prevalence of petty or grand theft of speed money and access money in each of the 15 countries or regions that you want. Mm-hmm. How did you, what was the, the basis for the measurement? Sure. So I wanted to create an alternative for the CPI. Um, and this index, it's called the Unbundled Corruption Index or the UCI. And I follow a method that the CPI uses as well, which is it is an expert survey. So basically, I reach out to people who have expertise in a particular country, such as China, Thailand, Indonesia, and I present them with a series of vignettes. So, meaning scenarios that describe either speed money or access money or embezzlement, and I ask them to rate the prevalence of this class of corruption, and I combine their perception scores to create. A unique score for every country, where you can see number one, the overall corruption score, and number two, the unbundled corruption score across the four categories. Right. Now, this has several advantages over CPI because the CPI is actually not an in-house survey; it is actually combined from multiple existing surveys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the numbers actually go up and down. In ways that may have nothing to do with reality or even with its own measurement, it just has to do with whatever sources it selected. It also does not present experts with concrete vignettes. So if you look at their the sources that they use, they would ask people really generic questions like, "How corrupt do you think the United States is from zero to ten? <laughs> you know, and you'd be like, right, right. "Well." I don't know. How about seven point five? You know, like how like how do you come up with seven point five? You don't know, right? Right. And so the, what I did is to add a few measurement precision into this index. So we have we now have a much more unbundled, nuanced 
perspective into the different structures of corruption that exist across countries. So give us some examples of the kind of vignettes that you presented the uh, respondents with. So um, each category has about five of those. Mm-hmm. And in access money, one of them that I use is the one from Bo Xilai. Mm-hmm. So my vignettes are inspired by real world events. So the one in Bo Xilai would be, you know, there's a powerful um, official and in exchange for your cultivating close connections with him, you have a steady flow of government contracts. You know, how common is this? Right, right. I also included vignettes for... Uh, the types of access money that exists in Western democracies, which is excluded from conventional measures. So I included um, what is called the revolving door practices, which is common in the U.S., right. where elites you know, move constantly between the public and private sector. I have a, I have a vignette for corporate contributions to politicians. And so the, the vignettes were able to capture different scenarios of the four types of corruption. Let's let's drill down into that uh, right now um, because it's something that I did want to ask you about. You make this claim and you include this actually built, building it into your research that the kind of corruption that you see in the United States, what we call this infamous revolving door. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you, you said it broadly, you know, that it's officials moving between the public and private sector. But, you know, even more specifically, it's where you have regulators who leave uh, office and they, they actually join K Street lobbying firms that represent the very industries that they were just regulating or mm-hmm. maybe even worse, you know, the other way where regulators are appointed to, to regulate an industry straight out of a K Street firm where they were lobbying against regulation, right? I mean, we saw that happen, especially during the, the Trump administration. But I'm curious, have you gotten pushback against that idea that the revolving door and maybe the, the whole lobbying industrial complex in the United States is the same morally or, or institutionally as bribery of the kind that you just described with Bosilai? Mm. Are these the same to most people? Or did you have to, did you get some pushback on that idea? on that claim. Definitely there was pushback, as as you can expect. And I think it's good to get this pushback because that, that was my objective. It was kinda kinda stir up, you know, people's overly comfortable assumptions that ah oh, here in rich democracies we are free of corruption. And I wanted people to question that. Mm. And I was like, what if you have access money that is institutionalized and legalized? where legally nobody has done anything wrong, but clearly you have a conflict of interest, right? Clearly someone's benefiting tremendously from, say, the U.S. financial crisis and and the very same people who benefited the most got away with it. So how how should we characterize that situation? And I think what happens when we talk about corruption is just we just just overlook, we just ignore this. And it's much easier rather to talk about corruption in the forms of poor country corruption, embezzlement, corruption, or the Chinese types, you know, the ji and the bo And so by bringing those legalized and institutionalized access money into my measurement, there is definitely pushback. You know, people will react with, how could you, you know, how could you include that? You know, that's... <laughs> That's not corrupt. And I'll be like, okay, it's fine. You know, we can debate about that. You know, we can debate. But I just, you know, included that in my measure. And if you don't like it, you can come up with a different vignette. But if you exclude that from the vignette, you are making a value judgment. You are saying that that's not corruption. So 
I, I don't have an answer myself. I'm not trying to impose one. But by, by my act of measurement, I, I wanted to bring conversation into this topic that, that people are not willing to confront. You may not have an answer, but I absolutely do. It is corruption, just like Citizens United. <laughs> uh, Citizens United, that is, that is, you know, it's basically saying, okay, political bribery is completely okay. Uh, I, but yeah, I'm sure there are some people who would quibble with it. So let's, let's talk about the comparisons that you were already to, able to make just after laying out these different types of corruption and showing their relative prevalence in these 15 countries or regions that you look at in these UCI. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you know, you look at China versus Russia, China versus India. What jumps out at you when you look at their unbundled scores? What, what, especially if you look at China versus some mm. of these other countries, what's the thing that jumps right out at you? Great question. I think one of my favorite comparisons is China versus India. And I believe actually your podcast with Yukon Huang also mentioned China versus India. Yeah, let me let me just, just remind people that, that I did, a, a, it was, I think it was in 2017, we recorded a live podcast. I, I would encourage everyone to go back and look at it because we'll bring up Yukon again because he, he makes some very contentious uh, very controversial claims about <laughs> corruption that, that I'll want to talk about with you, Yan Yan. But um, yeah, so yeah, I did bring that up. Yes, and we are continuing with that conversation. So when I look at the UCI scores for China and India, what pops up is that these two countries are equally corrupt in terms of total corruption, whether it's in my score or the Corruption Perception Index. Right? Mm-hmm. But once you unbundle corruption, what you find is that they have different structures of corruption. So in India, the most dominant type of corruption is speed money. Right. Bribes are being paid to overcome rate tape. In China, the most dominant type is access money. So bribes are being paid to gain access rather than to avoid harassment. So the objective of graft is different in China versus in India, which you would not notice if you didn't unbundle their corruption. Or if you didn't actually travel between these two countries. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember there was this book by this investor named Jim Rogers, who many of you probably are aware of. He, he wrote a series of books. And, and, and in one, he talks about how just entering any country, you can sort of get a sense for how much, what, you know, he doesn't call it this, but how much speed corruption there is just, you know, in, in the visa line or, you know, in, in the whole process, the intake process, and then at the airport, how how well do they keep the sort of black cabs away from just arrived travelers or, uh, you know, is there like a good orderly taxi queue? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Anyway, so you were saying, I didn't mean to interrupt you with <laughs> my own little vignette. But. No, actually, I, I wanted to share a quick anecdote building on what you just said, because I completely agree that how you are treated at, at, at the point where you enter a country tells you a lot about the corruption regime in the country. Um, I, I have been to China, India, and Nigeria. And the first time I entered Nigeria, as soon as I walked down from the plane, I was immediately asked to pay a bribe, and I couldn't pass unless uh, I paid a bribe. And so wow. that was yeah. actually my first experience of being openly extorted by um, government officials. And so it tells you how corrupt the country is. Uh, they just do it openly. Right. You know? was, and, and of course, I was an easy target. And when I was in India, they were more subtle. Uh, the, the, the visa officers would say, how did you like India? 
<laughs> and then I would say, oh yeah, I love it. Um, and when I did nothing, he didn't stamp my, my, my passport. And so I, I would walk back to the line and I would say, oh, but you didn't stamp it. And reluctantly, he would stamp it. You know, so <laughs> he was more subtle. He was not outrightly predatory. And then if you go to Pudong Airport, you know what happens. You, right. you just walk through in two minutes and there's a button that uh, asks you to rate the official. Are you, are you very unhappy to very happy? And usually I'm very happy. Right. right? And right. so just passing through customs tells you the vast differences between three emerging economies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you've advanced a really interesting theory about the relationship between economic growth on the one hand and the prevalence of these different forms of corruption on the other. I wonder, though, do you have a theory about or any theories about why different countries see higher or lower levels of these different types of corruption? Are there structural or developmental or even cultural factors common to countries with, you know, say, high levels of speed corruption or of access corruption or mm -hmm. petty theft? I mean, is it, what's the key here? Is it state capacity? Is it uh, high levels of social trust or low levels of social trust? I mean, are, or are these things actually determined by the level of corruption? Did you get a sense? I know it's not really something you talk about directly in your book, but I'm really curious. You know, that's, that seems to be the, the thing. The next question is, what causes these differences between countries? Mm, that's a deep question. And it's kind of implicit in my book. Um, there are several factors that um, shape the structure of corruption. And one of them is the political regime type. That does matter. And I would go back to the example of China compared to India. So there's this quote in my book of a high-level official in New Delhi. And he says, if you want me to speed up a file, I can't do it. But if you want me to stop a file, I can do that immediately. <laughs> right? And so, so that, that, that's kind of an amusing quote, especially for people who know China, because in China is the opposite. If a capitalist has connections with the Ibasho, right, the party secretary, right. you don't have to care about any files. The party secretary will just slam the table and make the decision. And so what it tells you is that because India is a fragmented democracy, Officials derive their power from the ability to block, to veto. They can stop a file if they wanted to. Right. But if they wanted to speed things up, they can't because there's so many other political actors who can also intervene in the process. In China, on the other hand... Right. Too many vetoes. Too many veto players. In China, they have powers concentrated in just a few people. So if you find the right people and you have the right connections with them, then you can gain exclusive access to lucrative opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, but then that, of course, raises the question of why then are China and the United States, which are quite opposite regime types, why do they exhibit sort of similar patterns in terms of the distribution of types of corruption? Mm, good question. And that's because the United States compared to India is not a fragmented democracy. So mm -hmm. India is a democracy, but it is also this large, sprawling, developing country with much, much lower state capacity than in the United States. And in the United States, I know things look dysfunctional in the past year or so, 
but actually state capacity is still really high in this country. Right, right. So you have to pay your taxes, for instance. You can't run away from that. The IRS has tremendous state capacity, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other think of other kind of state functions and regulations. You can't like not show up in court because the state has tremendous capacity when it wants to enforce its decisions in the United States. So what you see in the United States is that the other kinds of growth damaging corruption is generally contained. So generally for uh, someone from the middle class, you don't walk on the street and expect that a police officer will extort you or shake you down, right? And embezzlement um, is also fairly in control in the United States. But the kind of corruption that dominates in this country is access money, and it in particular comes in a legalized and institutionalized variety that is much more sophisticated than the Chinese version. Right. In fact, I call China a relative newcomer in the process of becoming a capitalist economy. Yeah, anyway, let's go back to China and uh, let's talk about the way that you periodize the reform years and what's come since under Xi Jinping. Arguably, it's you know already. We're beyond the end of reform and opening. Carl Minzner argued that. I had him on the show, and he made that point mm -hmm. very clearly. Oh, but what events do you see as punctuating these different periods? You know, what begins and ends these different periods? And what types of corruption do you see rising or falling during these different periods that you demarcate? Uh, because, you know, as you note, you know, uh, countries do not, or certainly China does not, exhibit stable patterns of corruption over time. Right. And I'm glad you emphasize that I, you know, when I teach my Chinese politics course, the first thing I teach is that there isn't just one China, but several Chinas since 1949, and even since 1978. And so it's important not to think that China has always been the same. So we can think about the structure of corruption in China evolving drastically since the 1980s. In the 1980s, China looked like any other typical developing country. It had all kinds of corruption. Petty bribery was rife, and so was bureaucratic extortion. And so if you remember the literature from that period, there was a lot of talk about peasant burdens, you know, mm -hmm, arbitrarily mm -hmm. kind of extorting farmers for fees and fines. And even MNCs like McDonald's had to cope with police officers randomly showing up and saying you have to pay this fee or fine. So that was very common throughout the 1980s and up until the 1990s. And then from 1998 onward, you had the Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji administration. And Zhu Rongji spearheaded this ambitious scheme to build up modern state capacity in China. And so this host of institutional reforms that he put into place, all of which were very dry and boring, did successfully build up administrative capacity. Mm -hmm. And so if you look in my book, what happened is after 1998, embezzlement fell. Instances of extortion fell. Petty bribery fell as well. And it came down to really simple things like, in the past, if a Chinese person had to pay a fine, all of that was done in cash. If you pay in cash, of course, it's very easy to collect a bribe and put it in your own pocket, right? Right. For the police officer, if he collects your fine in cash, you can just put it in his own pocket. So it was impossible to track financial transactions, to control bureaucratic behavior. But from the 1990s onward, China transitioned into 
uh, non-cash payments of fines and fees. And mm-hmm. a simple technical reform like this dramatically reduced instances of extortion. Ah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So the 1990s up until the 2000s was actually a quiet period of administrative capacity building in China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what, what happens beyond that? Beyond that, and then we come to 2010. Around 2010, China entered into another period, which is you start to have this infrastructure boom. I would actually push that back. I would say that that begins, I would say 2000s, you know, and, and starting from the 2000s and up until now. China entered into this new political economy where local governments were really starved for funds because... As Zhu Rongji built up state capacity, he simultaneously re-centralized tax revenue. And as a grand compromise, Beijing allowed local governments to finance themselves by leasing land. Right. So that was when the revolution in land-based financing was launched in China. And local governments all of a sudden turned their attention away from manufacturing-based growth into urbanization-based growth. So they happily sold lots and lots of land to private developers. And using that money, they then borrowed more from banks. And then they built lots and lots of infrastructure. So if you look at the numbers in China, the impressive glitzy infrastructure that we see in China today is actually quite recent. It happened around, started around 2000. I would say 2010, you start to really see this steep climb. So for those of us who have been to China before 2010, you might actually kind of vaguely recall that, say, in the 2000s, the infrastructure was really not that great at all. That's right. And all of a sudden, year by year, year by year, you see this like, wow, you know, bridges are showing up, new airports, like, wow, glitzy highways and so forth. And so this infrastructure boom happened after 2010s absolutely important for China's rise. But that was also the hotbed of financial risk, government debt, and high stakes excess money, because that's where government officials and capitalists can make a lot of money by leveraging land deals. So this is visible in the data, especially this period uh, that you describe of actually uh, building administrative state capacity after 98, you know, under Zhu Rongji, um, the emergence of better regulation, this diminution of petty and grand theft, and this diminution of speed money as well, and maybe the more, you know, visible rise of, of access money. It's it's in the data. And so can you talk about what data shows this? Because you look at a couple of forms of, of data. Uh, one of them is, is media mentions and, you know, textual analysis of media terms. Like, you know, so give us some examples of, 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 what kinds of terms you suddenly see being discussed with more frequency about uh, that, that illustrate the kinds of, of trends and fluctuations that you're describing? Sure. So in the book, I look at two types of data. Mm-hmm. One is official data of the number of corruption cases that were prosecuted. Right. And they were categorized into, into rough categories of embezzlement versus bribery. And so when you look at the data, you can see that what happens is, yes, on the whole, China has always had this persistent corruption problem, but embezzlement actually fell from 2000 onwards, very visibly. Whereas the kind of corruption that really exploded in China was high stakes uh, bribery. Right. So you see those in cases like um, 
the Lai Xiaoming, you know, yeah. is an inf- infamous case. He's the head of the uh, one of the largest state lenders in China. I can't remember the outrageous amount of bribes that he collected, but apparently they, you know, he, he stored them in in tons of cash in his basement. Um, so those kinds of corruption exploded from the mid two thousands onward because it was intertwined with a new political economy where you have infrastructure boom and you have land based financing. So all of the sticks were going up. The other kind of data that I looked at was also at media mentions. So how was the Chinese media talking about corruption, and what types of corruption were they talking about? So if you look at corruption with theft,、uh, the words associated with them would be tan pai. You know, tan pai in China means something like bureaucratic extortion. I bet people don't even mention them today, but it used to be heard a lot in the past. And you can see that there is a a, a stark decline as well after two thousands. Similarly, with words like "luan shou fei," which is arbitrary collection of fines, fees, yeah. and yeah, and all and all of those、um, things associated with extortion and speed money. And then the interesting thing about the the kind of new words that became popular from the two thousand, I would say the mid two thousands onwards, is things like "luo guan." Which is naked, naked official. officials?、Yeah. Naked official doesn't mean the official who doesn't wear clothes. It means the officials who、um, looks poor at home and then parks all of his condominiums and assets overseas, right, with his family. So luo guan became really、uh, popular.、Uh, another word that became popular is ya hui, ya hui, which means elegant bribery. So the forms of bribery became more sophisticated over time. One of the methods is to give art instead of cash. Right, right. Because with, with art, you know, you can the corrupt official might be able might be able to get away from that by saying, "Oh, that's not really you know worth much. You know, it's it's, it's just a Zhang Daqian, you know, painting. <laughs> you know, and it's subjective. The worth of which is subjective, and so." Um, so art became a popular means of bribery, and so there was this particularly interesting case of Wen Qiang, who was the corrupt police officer who fell in Chongqing. And when they arrested him, he had a lavish private art museum with works of some of the most famous Chinese artists that you don't even find in public museums. And so, and dinosaur eggs, <laughs> and dinosaur eggs, and I was like, does he really know how to preserve them? You don't need to. They're made of stone already. <laughs> Or he's gonna make an omelet out of it. <laughs> so,、uh, you know, in order for this all to work, though, of course, the the bureaucrats need to be incentivized in another way. Now, it's not just the financial incentives, but they、mm-hmm. still need to actually do their job. So, you talk about something. I think it was just really a fascinating chapter. Chapter four: profit sharing Chinese style. Can you outline how this works for our listeners? I mean, it's interesting that to Chinese bureaucrats who you speak to, this seems like a no-brainer, as though you know, pay and performance obviously ought to be linked. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm curious, maybe explain how this works and, and talk about whether this is unique to China. Sure. Well, let me start by explaining the concept of profit sharing.、Um, so, I describe the Chinese bureaucracy as operating under a system of profit sharing. At least, I would say in the pre-Xi era, because keep in mind that there have been drastic changes、oh, yeah. since、uh, Xi came into office, right? So, I'm always talking about the reform period.、Um, 
um, in, 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 in much of this book. So what happened with profit sharing is that government officials from the highest level to the lowest level, they have a direct share in the economic outcomes of their organization. So it could be a city, it could be a county, it could be as small as an agency within a county or even a public school. So they're equity holders right. you know, in that organization. And, and so we have to, first of all, make a distinction between high-level profit sharing and low-level profit sharing. So for an official like Bo Xilai, he doesn't care at all about his salary and bonuses. You know, that's not where he gets his rents, obviously. His rents comes from a different source, from the corporate sponsors who pay his family. So that's a different kind of profit sharing. Uh, capitalists line up to ingratiate themselves with these officials and pay them uh, bribes. But right. in that particular chapter you're referring to, I'm talking about rank and file bureaucrats. So the 49 million bureaucrats in China who run the country, but who are not at the level of Bo Xilai, mm -hmm. who are not county party secretaries. So you can think about police officers, the administrators who chop your uh, paperwork, you know, public service providers, you know, millions and millions of these bureaucrats. I think what's interesting is that they are also involved in profit sharing. Mm. And that was important because um, the government also wanted them to be involved in the process to be as financially self-independent as possible, to be incentivized to perform. And what I was surprised to find is that the actual compensation of these rank-and-file bureaucrats is systematically linked to the amount of revenue their organization is able to generate. And this previously is seen by people including China scholars, as corruption. So they dismissed it. They call it organizational corruption. And they see it as an act of deviance, you know, something terrible. And, and I have a slightly different interpretation. I would say that it actually functioned more as a set of economic incentives. Because it's so systematic, I mean, the numbers actually show you how systematically it is tied to the ability of your local government and agency to generate revenue. You look at, at fringe compensation, specifically in Shandong province, which is, as I think you argue convincingly, is a very representative province in many ways. And you demonstrate, you know, just as you had hypothesized, that compensation of these county-level bureaucrats is very much tied to how much revenue they bring in. And it's also quite transparent. It's there in the budget numbers that are public, right? You can look mm -hmm. at how these officials are compensated. You know what their nominal salary levels are, but you also see what they're given in kind, uh, you know, allowances for transportation or, or this or that. It, it's really interesting to see. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious. So obviously they recognize that building a tax base, as you argue, is better for their long-term wealth than just, you know, predatory collection of arbitrary fees and fines, right? I'm wondering whether promotion figures into this as well, that they are more likely to be tapped to move up in the the, uh, the party organization uh, because of of bringing in more GDP to their to their administrative unit. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, mm. yeah, because, you know, a, a, a mere rent seeker is not going to look good as a prospect for promotion, but somebody who, who fostered and nurtured uh, and attracted enterprises and produced 
actual economic growth, they will look like a good candidate for promotion. But both of them have have sk- not skimmed, but both of them have benefited, whether fringe compensation or or sort of petty rent seeking. And that, that would seem to me to make the incentive very much on the side of the person who, who is looking to play more by the rules and not petty rent seek, but rather build business. Is that is that is that correct? Mm-hmm. Is compensation not just the only thing, but promotion also a, a big part of it? The question about incentives depends on who is the actor in question. Mm-hmm. So for someone who is a provincial level leader like Bo Xilai, the relevant incentive for him is the career incentive. Okay. Right. And in fact, Bo Xilai is so special because he's a princeling. He doesn't. I think he doesn't even care very much about the career incentive. His his is a political incentive. Like he has ambitions, right? To be to go to the highest level of office, right? So that's why he he staged this dramatic profile for himself in Chongqing, right? So those are the incentives for someone at his level, and then for people who are like city and county level party secretaries. Um, in China, they are known as um, the top one percent. You know, sure. roughly about five hundred thousand officials. You know, at this senior enough rank where they are directly appointed by the party, uh, these individuals do care about career incentives, right? So that's where we hear a lot about the promotion. But but here's a very important qualifier. In fact, if you look at the numbers, then the number of seats for upward promotion is very very scarce. Huh. And this is actually well documented in the scholar literature, but not so much talked about in 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 popular press. And so, I, I think sometimes the talk about promotion incentives as the cause of Chinese prosperity is overblown. I see because the number of seats for upward promotion, as you can imagine, I mean, a massive bureaucracy. Not everyone can be a mayor, and you know, so so there are actually very very few seats for moving upward. That's right? interesting, and so that means that in addition to career incentives, you need to have other incentives. I'm sorry, Kaiser, go ahead. No, no, no. That's that's really interesting. I, I, I I'm, take that, Daniel Bell. Right. <laughs> uh, fascinating, though. <laughs> I, I keep coming back to this question of you know why is it that these these street level bureaucrats um, they somehow know that it's in their interest not to completely fleece all the local enterprises or, or business owners. I mean, I, I keep thinking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's something beyond just their material compensation. It's it's not just the incentive logic, um, and you know the fact that there, there yeah. are few seats for promotion. I mean, uh, that 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 seems to reinforce it. Could it just have something to do with their their ideological indoctrination to to the discipline training that they receive in the party? I mean, to uh, to fear of of sanction, to fear of of you know. The, the very powerful um, coercive apparatus of, of the party, of Shuanggui. Of <laughs> it's a combination of factors. Yeah, a combination of factors. And you're right to point it out. What I show in that chapter is the relevance of their financial incentives. Right. But as we know in life, it's not always about money, right? So it's, it's, it's money plus other things. And for street-level bureaucrats, the promotion incentive is almost irrelevant because, like I said, like, what are the chances that a regular Keyuan becomes a mayor? Right? right. It will become. It will be something of a dream, really. And, and so there are not that many promotion incentives for for that level. 
And I have also encountered street-level bureaucrats who actually resist promotion because some people feel that, hey, I'm better off. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, as a regular employee, you know, in this position that pays me a lot of bonuses and I don't have to take so many responsibilities, right? So, so actually, that happens as well. Uh, not everyone wants to move upward. I know the feeling well. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we can all relate to that. There, oh, there yeah. are lots of street-level bureaucrats who are, who are like that. You know, they'd rather be in a bureaucracy that pays well than to move upward to, to a challenging position. You don't want to be department chair, do you? <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? So we can understand that. So, 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 so it's not so much career that drives them. Financial is an important part because the basic pay in China is below subsistence. And, and I think a lot of people are not aware of that. The basic, um, the formal salary for public servants in China does not even pay you enough to rent a one room in, in a slump in, in Guangzhou, you can't survive on it. And so you need to have all of these supplemental yeah. allowances, bonuses, and perks that are paid by your agency. In addition to financial incentives, the one other incentive that I see and witness is the emotional incentive. I do see that. It's something really hard to capture, huh. um, which is this sense of genuine pride that bureaucrats do take in their township or their agency. You can call that an organizational identity, you know, the way people feel proud of their university or their company. You see that, of course. Sure, yeah. And so they know that when my agency does really well, or in particular when my township, and remember that most of these street-level bureaucrats are locals, they're natives, they grew up in that place. Right. And so they, they do have a genuine sense of pride that, of course, we want our township to, to do well and to excel and so that kind of emotional concern for the place where they grew up and work, plus financial incentives, work together. Yeah, I can see how that would work. So then you, you have this wonderful chapter on crony capitalism in China, and you go with these two fascinating examples. The first, I think, to anyone who's been a listener to this show is going to be somebody who's very familiar. It's, of course, uh, Bo Xilai. And uh, he, of course, as you said, he was the son of red royalty. His father was Bo Yibo, and Bo Xilai himself, he was the mayor of Dalian. Uh, he was the minister of commerce, and then he was most famously party secretary of Chongqing. And there, you know, he was the author of this so-called Chongqing model, right? Uh, and, and, you know, that's mm-hmm. been much praised, as, as you point out. At the time, it was, you know, very held up as exemplary. He was the man behind this sort of sing red and strike black campaign. Uh, as, as we all remember, he went down in this spectacular blaze when his you know chief of police, uh, Wang Lijun, showed up at the U.S. consulate in Chengdu with evidence that, that his wife, or that Bo's wife, uh, Kai Lai, had murdered a, a British citizen named Neil Haywood. You guys all remember that. We talked about it incessantly back in 2012, uh, nine years ago. The other, though, is is probably less well-known, and his name is Ji Jianye. Uh, he, he rose to become Yang Zhou's mayor and then party secretary, and then the mayor of Nanjing. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, his name, Jianye, is actually one of the ancient names of Nanjing during the uh, the, the, the Eastern Han mm-hmm. and during the uh, the Three Kingdoms period. You know, this if you look at the ancient ruins of Jianye, it's within the municipality of, of, of Nanjing today. So it's kind of Yuanfen that he had that, that, that position. <laughs> but, you know, he yeah, fell from the to fall in Nanjing. Yeah, exactly, the fall in Nanjing. So but it's interesting. What, what do their stories tell us about the nature of crony capitalism in China? 
and and I, I guess the other thing that I want you to because I think is the the real point of it is how well it illustrates uh, how re- interregional competition is so important in sort of curbing the excesses of corruption. I think that it's um, really an interesting point in the book. Yeah, I I personally really enjoyed working on that chapter because I I learned a lot walking through their life stories. They are like the outsized characters of the Gilded Age, you know, these yeah. these sorts of, you know, officials who are... And, and I'm like, fr- frankly, curious why hasn't someone made a Hollywood movie out of Bo Xilai or any one of these officials because they have such dramatic life stories. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, the main point of that chapter, uh, that chapter was actually titled Corrupt and Competent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a paradox because normally we think if you are corrupt, you are incompetent. But what's interesting about their life stories is that they demonstrate the paradox of these officials in China who are simultaneously really competent and also corrupt. And I think understanding the profile of these types of officials is is uh, provides a crucial clue for going back to the original question of why is it China has prospered despite corruption is that people like Bo Xilai, Ji Jianye, they did a lot of things when they were government officials. And before they fell, you know, the media was always full of praise for them, talking about their development, urbanization, the projects that they brought in, how decisive they were. Yeah. And then as soon as they fell, right, you know, public media coverage just flipped overnight and talked all about their corruption. Yeah, you have this really great way of illustrating that with both of them because you you have this word cloud, uh, which unfortunately is just in Chinese. But fortunately, I read Chinese, so uh, it, it shows you know the the words that, that show up in in stories about them in the media uh, before and after the fall, and it's really quite striking. Very very interesting. Mm-hmm. The vagaries yeah, of yeah. social opinion, which we can all relate to. Ah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know. Um, Th- those were fascinating. Uh, what about this role of interregional competition in curbing um, corruption? I thought that was something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough in China. I mean, you know, and it is related in some sense to this idea about how how important promotion is. Uh, but but this is this is different. Yes, and I think people maybe don't realize how decentralized China is in in some and how much power provincial level officials actually have. Right. The paradox in China is that it is a single-party autocracy, but it is hyper-competitive. It's not just regular competitive, but hyper-competitive. The reason why I picked Bo Xilai and Ji Jianye is that Bo Xilai is exceptional in many ways because he's a princeling, he had ambitions for the highest office. And so uh, Ji Jianye is more representative of regular officials in, in uh, at the city and, and county ranks. Uh, who may or may not have a chance of moving upwards. And so you see in the case of Ji Jianye that um, as the leader of Yangzhou and later Nanjing, he was constantly competing with many other neighboring cities around him in just Jiangsu province alone, all of which are highly developed. Um, They have great advantages in attracting investors. And so one of the things that was brilliant about Ji Jianye when he was in Yangzhou was that he decided that he had to brand Yangzhou as a heritage site, blending ancient culture and modern civilization 
because he realized that Yangzhou couldn't say compete with the neighboring cities that had a much clearer industrial advantage. Because previously he was at Kunshan, which is you know one of the most prosperous industrial zones in China. Right. And so you can see that even though he was in the same province, which is Jiangsu, um, he had to adapt his development strategies in order to compete for investors. Right, right, right. That, that was a really great illustration of that phenomenon. There's so many officials that you could have you could have looked at. There's one in particular who I used to be fascinated by, this guy named Chou He, uh, who was also mm. in, in Jiangsu, but in the northern part of, of, of Jiangsu in Suqian. Uh, really fascinating. He also went down in 2015, but um, was one of these, you know, really aggressive privatizers. Just sort of such a poster child for those go-go years of the late 2000s. But anyway, let's move on, though, to beyond, you know, the real scope of your book, to, to look at this chapter on Xi Jinping and his anti-corruption campaign. And, and here, you know, you do something that could have stood alone as a, as a research paper, right? It, that whole chapter, you run another piece of, of research, basically, another whole separately designed experiment to assess whether performance, whether me- measured in, in relative contribution you know, to provincial GDP growth or patronage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm is ultimately the bigger determinant of a municipal official's fate under Xi Jinping. And you look at 330-some-odd mayors or, or I guess, city-level officials. I, I guess they were, I don't know if they were um, municipal party secretaries or mayors, but I think it was at that level, right? Party secretaries, yeah. Party secretaries. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think I, I would encourage listeners, maybe we don't have enough time to go into all the details, but I would really encourage listeners to look at that, um, that research design and the methodology there because it, it's really... It, it could be published, I think, separately as an, a very interesting paper. And you come to some, maybe we just go shoot, go right to the conclusions. So mm-hmm. is it performance or, or, or is it, is it um, patronage that ultimately determines the fate of an official? So that is the final chapter. In the final chapter, I turn to the Xi Jinping period. So all of the earlier right. chapters are mostly about the, the pre-Xi era. And so that's, that's, we can call that reform era where you have this highly incentivized entrepreneurial bureaucracy. So of course I had to dedicate, you know, one chapter to Xi Jinping because he has drastically changed things in, in, in China's bureaucracy. And one of the things that he brought about was this massive, enduring anti-corruption campaign on a scale that has never before been seen in the party's history. In that chapter, I wanted to answer the question of what determines the likelihood that a city official would fall, meaning would be investigated for corruption. Right? And so I look at two main factors. Does it have to do with their performance or does it have to do with patronage, meaning who is their boss at the next right. higher level and is their boss okay or not okay? And what I find after a series of regressions and analysis is that the answer is performance doesn't matter. It's all about patronage. Patronage is the overwhelming factor in the Xi administration Mm. uh, that determines the career path. Not in this case, it's not actually a career path that determines the life and death of a a city uh, first in command. Whether whether or not you will be investigated for corruption is determined by whether your patron at the next higher level is protected or himself fell. Well, yeah. 
you know, that's that's fascinating, but it, it's sort of at odds with what uh, Peter Lorenzen concluded in his paper, which I talked to him about a couple of years ago. Uh, I would urge people to look at that, that listen to that, and check out his paper as well. It's uh, really interesting. I'd love to get the two of you on to, to talk about uh, what you what your findings are and whether they can be squared. It'd be really fascinating. Um, Yuyan, in, in the last few minutes here, there's, there's still a couple of topics I want to get to. And obviously, we should look at the hook in the book's title, this, the mm-hmm. p- promise of these parallels between the Gilded Age in the United States and China in the era of reform and opening. I mean, because they go beyond the fact that in both eras, you see these high levels of corruption you know, and this specific type of corruption of access money uh, and the very fast rates of economic growth that you see in both period. What else, though, do you see in common between these two periods? Because I remember, you know, when I first started talking to you about doing this program, I had, I had mentioned that uh, I had done a program with Jeremy and with Evan Osnes of The New Yorker just on the eve of his departure from China after many years reporting here. And he had talked about how, you know, if you really want to understand China in the era of reform and opening, the books to read really were Life on the Mississippi and The Gilded Age uh, by Mark mm-hmm. Twain. And the idea was that, you know, everyone was on the make. Everyone was, you know, everything was a a grift or a hustle. Uh, there was just this rampant greed. Um, social trust was low. And, you know, these robber barons just kind of bestrode the land. Right? Uh, so naturally reading your book, I thought of this. Uh, what did you make of that co- comparison? So, yeah, when I was reading stories about America's Gilded Age, it struck me that you can just change the American names to Chinese names and the plot would fit perfectly in contemporary China. Absolutely. And so this was this was really striking to me and that's why the book is called China's Gilded Age. But of course, we want to avoid making flippant parallels and analogies and that's why I also emphasize that they are very different. One is a democracy and the other is a single-party autocracy. So the, sure. the way they deal with the accesses of the Gilded Age um, are actually opposite, as we can see today. Um, I think it's also worthy to add that the Gilded Age is not just about rapid industrialization, because a country like South Korea also underwent rapid industrialization, but I wouldn't characterize it as a Gilded Age. I think what makes China huh. and America in the 19th century similar is that they were both periods of economic renewal and hustling after devastation. So the previous social class had already been destroyed. And so you, it presents before you this opportunity for, for, for creating a new class of rich. And that's exactly what we saw. You have the rise of J.P. Morgan and Carnegie in, in America, the titans of the new industries of the day. And today you have your Jack Mars, right, and your Pony Mars, who are the new titans of, of, of a China in the 21st century. Indeed. You know, so I guess I, I want to ask you, could a country like China have enjoyed that kind of steroidal economic growth without access money? You just pointed to the example of, of, of South Korea. It didn't have a Gilded Age. I mean, it certainly has access money. I'm sure that there's, you know, the chibbles and things like that are probably rife with it. And, you know, we always hear horrific news about some chibble head who commits suicide after being investigated. But, um, are, you know, I, I remember some years back, I, I was talking with Yukon Huang, and, you know, I, we, we talked about that earlier. And he argues in his book that, that 
corruption didn't just help China, but that it was necessary. The only way he was very emphatic about this, this idea that state assets could be transferred only through corruption uh, to the, you know, notionally more efficient private sector. Would you, you, would you agree with him there? I mean, is it possible for a country to have, like China, you know, a big country to, to have enjoyed that level of economic growth without the, 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 the steroid shot of, of, of access money? Well, I would call corruption steroids, or you might think of it as fuel, in the sense that it sped up the process. Mm-hmm. So a process of modernization that might have normally taken, say, 100 years, what happened in developing countries like Asia is that they happen in a very compressed period of time. And access money had a role to play uh, in the sense that, number one, it incentivized politicians to pour their efforts into rapid growth. Uh, and number two, it also incentivize capitalists to do more business and build more and make more profit. And so it plays the role of a steroids. But I would avoid kind of the statement that it is the cause of growth. Because I think when you say that corruption is the cause of growth, it gives people the wrong impression that that's the only thing that matters. But the real situation is that it's one among multiple other factors that had to come into play. So in China's case, another crucial factor is China opened up to international trade. If that had not happened and you only had access money, it's not going to work, obviously, because you don't no, have an international market to interact with, right? And so it's, it, you, it's best to think of it as a fuel. Like You need to put fuel into a car in order to drive it. But you can't say that the fuel is the cause of my movement, right? The fuel is a contributor to your ability to move from point A to point B. I wouldn't call it the cause. But it's a necessary, not sufficient condition. Still, it's a necessary mm-hmm. condition if exactly. to move at that and rate. And also to stress that the and the outcome is not just growth. The outcome is specifically imbalanced, risky growth. Very good. I got one final question for you. I mean, and you've already flicked at this, but, you know, in in recent weeks, really, it's only been in recent weeks that Xi Jinping has started using with much greater frequency this phrase, common prosperity. How how do you suggest that we understand this and and what's coming? Is this the next phase in the the reaction against the excesses of China's Gilded Age? Of course, you know, you you Mm. alluded to this, but the the outcome in the United States, you know, we went into this progressive era, which, you know, had its, its bad points too, of course, but is this the, uh, well, I mean, in some, some people might, might see this as a regressive era that we're, we're in now as a result. And, and that this idea of common prosperity is just sort of a, uh, soak the rich social leveling, you know, coercive redistribution. Well, how do you, how do you think we should look at this? Well, Xi Jinping is the leader who is overseeing China's Gilded Age. That makes his mission and his constraints and resources very different from his predecessors. He knows very well that he is 
the leader of the Gilded Age, but he cannot admit that openly. Obviously, he cannot say that, look, China today is kind of similar to America in the 19th century, right? That's, that's a taboo thing to admit. But he knows that China has problems of inequality, of crony capitalism, of financial risk. And these are all of the side effects of the dominance of excess money over the past decades. And so um, I have this essay in Foreign Affairs, and uh, it's called Can China Survive the Gilded Age? And the key argument in that essay is that Xi's mission is to take China out of the Gilded Age into China's own version of a progressive era, but specifically Mm. through commands and campaigns. This is exactly, I think, what we have been seeing in the past months, is crackdown on tech monopolies, crackdown on private tutoring, on high property prices, um, and so forth. So I think that this is a useful lens. The Gilded Age is a useful lens to understand the motivations of what she's doing today. It's also a really interesting and consequential experiment in the sense that I don't think we've ever seen a country that tries to take itself out of crony capitalism through commands. Mm. That's true. I can't think of one. That's uh, that's it's it's a fascinating experiment, and I look forward to having you back on to talk about uh, this as it unfolds, because you're going to be one person whose opinions will be immensely valuable to this. Yuan Yuan, what a pleasure it was talking to you about this really important book. I, I really look forward to having you back on the show again. Um, let's um, move on out of recommendations, but first, just a quick reminder. That the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina, and if you like the work we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the best way to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's Access newsletter. Not only do you get this excellent roundup drawn from hundreds of different news sources on China, but you also get perquisites like you know early ad-free release of this show, of Seneca. Of big discounts on our, our live events once we start doing them again, and you know if Delta gets under control, inshallah, um, live recordings of the podcast and what what have you. So go to SubChina and hit that subscribe button, which is in the upper right hand corner. Let's go on to recommendations. Yeah, and what you got for us? I'm really excited. So I recommend a documentary called Generation Wealth, and it is about the new Gilded Age in America. Oh. So it's like portraits of excessive luxury, narcissism, and capitalism. And what I like about it is the producer kind of takes a personal take. And, and at the end of it, she she admits that she's been part of this environment. So um, I, I really enjoyed the documentary. And I'm recommending it because I wonder if there is a Chinese equivalent to it. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows of it, but if it doesn't exist, I think someone should make a Chinese version of Generation Wealth. Not just Crazy Rich Asians, right? <laughs> no, not, not the movie no. one, but a, but a documentary that reflects reality. Yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. I'd love to see it. I think nobody would want to take part in something like that during the C era. But uh, I bet, I bet. So I think yeah. that that documentary cannot be made. So we might have to wait. You don't want to shy fool these days on online in China. Definitely not. Right. So um, right. that's 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 a wonderful recommendation. I, I want to recommend two things. First of all, the very funny. Uh, Netflix miniseries, The Chair, starring the amazing Sandra Oh. Have you seen this yet, Yuan Yuan? 
I haven't, and I don't. It's it's kind of like crazy rich Asians to me, and I was like, I'm not sure. Like you know, I wanna watch some in some unrealistic portrayal of a reality. Yeah. <laughs> you have to suspend disbelief and just. But 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 I could be unfair because I haven't watched that. I just I just saw like pictures of the office, and as soon as I saw them, I'm like, nah, it's a fantasy land. But but did you like it? it but you obviously it is. But it, it. I did. I I didn't just like it. I loved it. I mean, and and you have to you know understand it's not intended to be a faithful version of academia, but oh, it really does get some of the the, the issues that are in play. And, and I think in particular, what it does well is it really. It looks at you know so-called political correctness on campus, wokeness on on college campuses, and it does it you know it it, it does poke fun, but it it also shows another very important perspective that's very empathetic toward you know why this is happening, and it, it really I think it's it it strikes that balance as well as anything can be expected to, where you don't come away feeling that it's just simply dismissive of it or or that it's mocking you know entirely mocking uh, kind of campus wokeness, so it's it's quite good. Um, I really liked it and I think Sandra Oh is just such a fantastic actor she really is, shows her acting chops in there she is. and yeah she's really great uh, the other thing I want to recommend is the excellent Chinese Whispers podcast by Cindy Yu for The Spectator uh, she does this out of the UK it's fantastic anyone who likes Seneca will also like this show C- Cindy is a brilliant host uh, she brings on really good guests you know many of whom we've had on Seneca but we haven't uh, there's others, you know, who I haven't gotten to, which I'd l- love to. Like, there's a really fantastic uh, interview with David Ownby, for example, uh, who I, I've really been eager to, to bring onto my program. But um, it's a really good podcast. I was talking to Cindy earlier today about the possibility of us doing a crossover show. So uh, look for that. <laughs> if her cool. boss, you changed my mind that. about the chair, so I, I I will watch that. Following, yeah, please do. Yeah, please do. And I, I'm, you know, curious. I, I, I've talked to a lot of academics who've seen it, and they all have the same. A lot of them have the same reaction. It's like you're, you're cringing for one reason or the other. Either you're cringing at the, the, you know, kind of unrealistic portrayal, and then when it hits t- too close to home, it really hurts because it's too, too <laughs> close to home. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, check it out. Uh, it's, it's. I loved it. I, I had a really great time watching it. Well, I, I, Ryan, it was fantastic talking to you. I really just, the book was so interesting and so glad that I had a chance to read it closely uh, in preparation for this. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.